Happy New Year, everyone. It is officially 2023, and Alex and I are completely stoked for the potential that this year has to be great. We have all realized how every blessing we have should be appreciated, how the people around us and our families and our communities are valuable, and how much we need each other. We are also reminded each of the past few years just how critical emergency medicine and acute care medicine is, how critical each one of you are. As is becoming a little bit of a tradition of ours, we want to say thank you to the people who are following us. That means all of you, hopefully, are following. If you aren't already, please hit that follow button. In particular, on Podbean, we get names, as we've mentioned before. And so thank you, Angela Bentley, Lisa Poole, Kassara Little 88 Also, shout out to our amazing Instagram followers, Casey Carrier T, Jesse Gardner, Alex Buckholtz, Immuno Runner, Liz Canterbury, Sarah Sutherland, and so many more. We are grateful to each of you. We also want to highlight that we changed our logo for the new year to this new elegant black evening attire style one. Give us a shout out about which one you like best, or if you have ideas on how we can make it better for the following year. We got a plan ahead, you see. Finally, we want to put a bug in your ear about the High Performance Resuscitation Teams Conference that is jointly sponsored by Stanford Emergency Medicine and Mayo Clinic Emergency Medicine. The conference is being held in April from the 13th to the 15th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And we're currently working on trying to get a chance to chat with Dr. Alvarez, who's one of the course directors, briefly about the details of that conference. So look for that hopefully next month. Also, if you have an interest in urgent care medicine, come hang out with both Alex and I in Las Vegas. We are both teaching at the Urgent Care Updates 2023 conference, which is being held May 4th to the 6th, 2023 at Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas, Nevada in the United States. There's a long list of outstanding topics and speakers for this event too. Join either conference by registering through the website ce.mayo.edu. Again, that is ce.mayo.edu. Hope to see you all there. Please reach out to us on all of your platforms. As always, don't forget to like, follow, comment, email us at our email at alwaysonem at gmail.com. Reach out on Twitter or Instagram or pull us aside in the hallway. Okay, without any further delay, let's kick off season two. Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda. Welcome to the January episode of Always On EM the official podcast of the Mayo Clinic Emergency Medicine Department. My name is Venk Bellamconda. I am joined by Alex Finch. We are emergency physicians at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and excited to host another season of the show for all of you. Our guest this month is one of the most intelligent people we have yet interviewed. He is dual boarded in internal medicine and nephrology, and to say he is well regarded as an educator is an understatement. He has won seven excellence in teaching awards from the Mayo Clinic Alex School of Medicine, is consistently recognized as a top educator by the internal medicine residents, has won multiple Teacher of the Year awards, 
In addition, he has authored over 20 peer-reviewed publications on a wide range of medicine and nephrology topics. Our guest today is Dr. Jim Gregoire. Jim is a wonderful person to be around as he brings such joy to his teaching sessions, and we are thrilled to have him join us today. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your journey into medicine, nephrology, and teaching? Ah, so my dad was an obstetrician, and he used to do sports physicals and scout physicals, uh, and I would help him out with those. And my job was to mess around with the urine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So How old be, were you? Oh, I was uh, junior high, maybe. Okay. So there'd be a little cup of urine, and I'd take the dipstick and put it in there. You know, no infection control precautions at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd read out the dipstick. Uh, there you go. So maybe that's how I got interested in kidney problems. So Fascinating. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I'm an outdoors person. I like to go camping. I've uh, been on over 50 wilderness canoe trips. Uh, and every winter for the past 10 years, I go on a short winter camping trip up on the Canadian borders. A winter camping trip? Yeah, winter camping trip. Um, yeah. How do, uh, how do you keep warm? Yeah, well, you got to be, ha- it's all about attitude. Uh, <laughs> it's all about attitude. Yeah. And find the right gear uh, and stay hydrated. And yeah, people can tell if you're not very hydrated on those trips because your urine starts getting real concentrated. And when you go in the snow, it shows up. Uh, <laughs> I met an ophthalmologist once who said you can tell everything about a person's health in their eyes. Do you feel that way about urine? Yes, I do. There you go. (laughs) Do you mind kicking us off on a case? Absolutely. So we have a 50-year-old male with a history of end-stage renal disease coming to our emergency department, and he's complaining of some abdominal pain. He doesn't have a mature fistula and and does have a temporary dialysis catheter and says, I get dialyzed three days a week. I was dialyzed yesterday, and now I'm having some abdominal pain. Mm-hmm. By the emer- way, we wouldn't call that a temporary dialysis catheter. We call it a semi-permanent catheter because probably uh, tunneled under his skin. So he could have that for weeks or months or even years. Uh, once had a, a dialysis patient who had a tunneled hemodialysis catheter, the same catheter for eight years, never, wow. never caused a problem. Um, but we don't like tunnel catheters because you guys know they get infected. So we hope people get fistulas or crafts. But so this man's getting by at the tunnel catheter. Yeah. He's been getting by for a little while. He, he's only had his for seven years. Uh, <laughs> oh. So it's, it's, it's been there for a while. Yeah. There's a lot of questions going through my mind. I now need to work up some abdominal pain. I need to consider other things in light of his renal dysfunction. And I need to figure out if anything I'm going to do is going to make him worse. Wow, let me guess, you're thinking about putting them through the glazed donut of knowledge, the CT The donut of (laughs) truth. The glazed donut of knowledge. Have you ever heard it described that way? I have never. I love it. Yes. Is is the glaze iodinated? (laughs) Well, so with the CT scan, of course, it might get some contrast up. And you say, ah, big deal. He's got end-stage renal disease. Uh, So what if he gets some contrast? But we know that we need to try to preserve whatever little bit of GFR an end-stage renal disease patient has. So even if they make just a little bit of urine, you know, 500 milliliters of urine, that helps with fluid management and gives them a little bit of clearance. So, so even in person, you know, who's on dialysis for several years, we still try to avoid contrast. So. What if they're aneuric? 
Does if, that change things? Ah, uh, then I wouldn't be then I wouldn't be so concerned. If they're okay. aneuric, they got zero intrinsic kidney function. I wouldn't be concerned. Uh, the thing that'll come up in that situation is doctors say, "Wow, we're going to give the c- contrast, and maybe that's going to increase their osmolality and cause some fluid overload and congestion and like." Rarely ever see that happen. Good, I hadn't thought about it. Now I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do want to hear more, more about this because honestly, it's something we face a fair amount. So what I'm hearing is first, I should assess if the patient produces any urine or not. And if they produce some urine, how can I help the patient in shared decision making with this? What, what relative risks are we talking about to the patient for getting that? contrasted CT scan of their, of their belly or of their chest if, if I'm worried about a PE. Yeah, so, okay, if you're worried about PE or abdominal, severe abdominal symptoms, then guess what? I'm sorry to say that that triumphs over maintaining a little bit of kidney function. So you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> if it's a life-threatening situation, you got to have contrast. You got to give contrast. Honestly, my experience, a lot of CT scans we could probably interpret them pretty well without contrast, uh, but uh, but if you gotta give contrast, you gotta give contrast. We in nephrology recognize that. We just try our dangness to uh, avoid elective CT scans with contrast. I definitely agree with that, but I also like to be really honest with my patient because sometimes I feel like I put in orders, and honestly, even with with the radiation from CTs, sometimes I feel like I don't explain enough about what that could mean to them down the line. If I'm going to have a conversation with my uh, patient who produces urine but is on dialysis, would you typically go over with a patient, there is still a risk of decreasing your kidney function from here out, here on out from this CT. I, I'm not sure exactly what the degree of that dysfunction would be, but there is a, a risk. Is that kind of how you would encapsulate that or how would you describe it better? I would say that's perfect. I I would say in my simple way, yeah, when we give the contrast, we might see some decline in your intrinsic kidney function, and unfortunately it might be permanent, uh, and that might mean that your dialysis is just going to be a little tougher. We might have to remove more fluid with dialysis, but it shouldn't be a big problem. And by the way, even though we're trying to preserve whatever GFR they have, guess what, as the years march on on dialysis, most people, their kidneys start to shrivel up and they end up making no urine, but in those few years when they're still making some urine, it would be nice to maintain whatever GFR they have. That's really helpful. And if I could take this conversation even a step before that, I'm hearing different perspectives on the realities of contrast-induced nephropathy. And certainly I've heard from the radiology side one perspective. What's your perspective on does this exist? What is the danger? Yeah, so contrast nephropathy, I believe it is a real thing, okay? Um, yeah. Okay, and I, I know there's some studies that show that people have gotten CT scans with contrast ha- have been able to identify a big risk for AKI, and those are people with normal kidney function. Those are people with C- with chronic kidney disease. Um, those are inpatients, outpatients. Uh, oh, wow, wow, wow. When you're with me on the floor in the hospital, we'll see patients of contrast nephropathy, definitely from interarterial contrast, so coronary angiograms, things like that. Could definitely see contrast nephropathy and CT scans, intravenous contrast, we'll see it in certain situations. So patients unstable in the emergency department, their volume contracted, they're on direct, so taking NSAIDs and then we whip in some contrast, we'll definitely see some contrast nephropathy. 
And some nephrologists will say it's not necessarily all just the contrast. It's the whole setting, the whole circumstance. So the contrast is, you know, component of it. Do you feel that it's a reversible condition or? Oh, it's definitely reversible. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, and if they've got good kidney function to start with, then usually always reverses. Uh, if it's just a small dose of contrast, usually reverses. Um, of course, we can talk a lot of antidotes about Sometimes it doesn't, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I remember uh, hearing about a physician who had a kidney transplant, okay? And he went into a facility, and they said, oh, we can give the CT with contrast, no problem, okay? And boom, his kidney transplant failed and never bounced back. So, the, you know, oh. there's antidotes like that uh, that I see. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very few things are absolute. And yeah. Within the realm of contrast nephropathy, do you see certain types of CT scans being more problematic than others? Uh, well, it's related to the osmolality of the contrast, right? So the, those that are isoosmolar are less nephrotoxic, uh, and it's also related to the volume of contrast, so it can keep the volume low. Uh, and, and I know in the emergency department, you probably don't have much time to prep the patient. If ever we could hydrate the patient, that would make the risk of contrast nephropathy less. If the patient ends up getting the CT scan, regardless of the outcome and the pathology we find, how do we then set them up for success afterwards? In other words, they're a dialysis patient, they need dialysis in 24 hours, is it not that big of a deal? And I think it comes back to the topic you talked about uh, with regards to the volume load they've received. Mm -hmm. Yep, so once a person gets the contrast, basically the damage is done. So contrast is a really potent vasoconstrictor and immediately causes renal artery vasoconstriction, uh, and plus it causes some osmotic stress on the nephrons. Uh, people have wondered, ah, how about give contrast and then do dialysis afterwards to remove the contrast? Maybe we could save the kidneys. That's been shown doesn't work. Uh, so usually a person with the end-stage renal disease gets the contrast. If they're going to do fine, they do fine. If they're going to get some loss of kidney function, it's going to happen. There's nothing much we can do about it. I didn't know that. Do you even need to then do dialysis within 24 hours for the volume load from the contrast, or it's not that big of a deal? Okay, so, and people have wondered about that too. Yeah, that the, the osmolality of the contrast is going to expand the intravascular volume and maybe put some stress on the heart and lungs. Guess what? I just don't see it happening. Um, and, you know, we, we wonder about that, but no, they can just usually go on their usual dialysis schedule. I know in the past I have admitted patients to facilitate dialysis thinking it was uh -huh. somehow nephroprotective, uh -huh. but it sounds nope, like that's nope. not needed. Not needed. Mm -hmm. Great to know. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in my mind, I thought it was actually the contrast causing direct damage to the kidney cells, but it sounds like this is more of a hypoperfusion from vasoconstriction that yeah, happens so in a select group. A couple group. of things. Uh, so the contrast is very vasoconstrictive. Uh, through different mediators, um, and that happens immediately, so it quickly causes some ischemia to the kidneys. And then on top of that, the contrast, as it's passing through the tubules, it puts osmotic stress on the renal tubular epithelial cells. But that's the mechanism for more of a delayed um, mm -hmm. creatinine rise. You got it. Okay. Yep, and hopefully those tubules can repair, hopefully those sad few little remaining nephrons can shrug off that contrast and survive. Absolutely.
Jim, if the patient is on peritoneal dialysis, does that change the way you think about contrast? Uh, yes, with uh, peritoneal dialysis, we really have to be careful about contrast. So, so peritoneal dialysis, you could say it's a little less efficient than, than hemodialysis. So the patients who are doing peritoneal dialysis, they're really relying on their intrinsic kidney function. And if they ever see a drop in their intrinsic kidney function, then they tend to get more complications. Dialysis just doesn't work as well. You know, so we really got to maintain the intrinsic function of someone on PD. Um, yeah, these are often younger people, maybe a little more vigorous people than the average ESRD patients that are waiting for transplant and the like. And we got to really protect their kidneys and keep them healthy so they'll do well for the next several years while they're waiting for their transplant. Can you clarify for me the mechanism by which peritoneal dialysis Okay, so peritoneal, believe it or not, the preferred form of dialysis for the Mayo Clinic is home dialysis. Okay, that is our preferred That's form of dialysis. dialysis. Yep. Okay. Okay. But you guys say, wait a minute, about 90% of people who do dialysis, they do dialysis at the dialysis center. Home dialysis preferred. Why are so many people doing it at the dialysis center? Well, it's a little more convenient for the patient to go to the dialysis center. If they're frail, it's kind of hard for them to do home dialysis. I once read a book by a doctor who was on dialysis, and he surveyed a lot of the patients, and the patients said, wow, I just want to come to the dialysis center and do dialysis and then go home and forget about it rather than having to do it at home. Um, but we do prefer home dialysis because patients who do home dialysis, they like it. Okay, They hate to give it up. It's convenient for their lifestyle. Most people do peritoneal dialysis, do it at nighttime through the night. So they're sleeping while the dialysis is going on, and then they're free during the day. Uh, if you talk to most nephrologists, they'd say, oh, yeah, I would do home dialysis. Most would say if I had to do di dialysis, I'd do peritoneal dialysis. So how does peritoneal dialysis work? So usually a general surgeon has to put a peritoneal dialysis catheter in the abdomen. It's done under general anesthesia with a laparoscope. The catheter is coiled down in the pelvis. And then after oh, a week or two of training, then the patient's ready to go. And by the way, most anybody, if they want to do peritoneal dialysis, they can do it. It's not that hard to learn, okay? Uh, it's, it's, it's easy. It just takes the right attitude. Uh, and then what happens during the... As patients go to bed, they learn to connect their peritoneal dialysis catheter to the peritoneal dialysis machine, and then the machine pumps some fluid into the belly, a couple liters of fluid, sits in there for a couple hours, machine draws it off, puts it back in, the machine's called a cycler, does that about five times during the night. And while the fluid is sitting there, it's, it's hyperosmolar, it's got a lot of glucose, dextrose, and that glucose then draws water in from the body into the peritoneal space. And with the water, then convection's occurring. So electrolytes and waste products are coming into the belly, and then it's drawn off. I see. So it actually is potentially a volume draw. I was always wondering uh, how there was a volume component to this. Mm -hmm. Wow, I mm -hmm. didn't understand that. That's incredible. Yep, yep. So most people, they're losing about two liters of fluid every day. So they're, you know, drinking a liter or two of fluid, and then they're losing a liter or two of fluid with their peritoneal dialysis. We can adjust 
the amount of ultrafiltration, the amount of fluid removal that occurs. But our patients do show up in the emergency department a lot, don't they? Uh, yeah. And for various reasons, uh, infections is a really common patient reason for a dialysis patient to go to the emergency department. Abdominal pain is another common one. Cardiac conditions, uh, volume overload, all different things. So. Jim, you mentioned infections are a common reason for dialysis patients to present to the ED. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so all our dialysis patients, hemodialysis or peritoneal dialysis, they have a higher rate of infection. They're not really all that immunocompromised. That's been studied, but just because they've got some frailties and, and comorbidities, they do have higher rates of infection than the general population. And guess what? If a dialysis patient gets pneumonia, twice the rate of death. Okay, dialysis patient gets some other infection, twice the rate of death. So our patients just don't tolerate infection as well. And yeah, our peritoneal dialysis patients, they're at risk for getting peritonitis. Good news, it only happens once every two years on average. Okay, and the good news is usually treatable. Okay, yeah, so the patient usually recognizes something. They get some pain in their belly. They see their peritoneal dialysis fluid is cloudy. They might have a fever. And then they can call their peritoneal dialysis center. Of course, if it's after hours, they show up in the emergency department. And then we assess them. And if it looks like peritoneal dialysis, then we try to get a sample of fluid from their peritoneal cavity, send it off for cell count and culture, and usually treatable. So the antibiotics are instilled right in the peritoneum with the dialysis. And the antibiotics sit in the belly and clears up the infection. Uh, and usually successfully treated, sometimes not. So once in a while, it's a resistant organism. If it's a, if it's a resistant Staph aureus, then it may not respond so well. If it's a fungal infection, whoa, that's going to be problematic. In some of those cases, we have to remove the peritoneal dialysis catheter. The person needs to go on hemodialysis, but just short term. Okay, so they can go on hemodialysis for couple weeks or a month or so, let the belly heal, and then they can go back to peritoneal dials. Other infections, they're not really risk for any other infections more so, but peritonitis we're concerned about. Patients always feel kind of saddened when they get that. They think, oh boy, it was something they did, but you know, it's just bacteria on the skin tracking down the catheter. And it probably is a bit of a technique issue, so people that are really fastidious with the technique have a lower rate of infection. Does the catheter then have to be exchanged? Is it assumed to be uh, infected? Nope. So if it's just a straightforward um, uh, peritoneal dialysis-associated peritonitis, we just leave the catheter in and treat through it. I'm really surprised. I thought SBP would be a really uncommon occurrence, but you're saying this happens on average about every two years. Once every two years on average. Of course, some people get it more often. Um, and why do they get it more often? Well, sometimes they had one and was just inadequately treated. Um, uh, and sometimes it is a technique issue, so they're just not doing the technique right. Um, and we certainly don't like our patients to get peritonitis because guess what? As time goes on, if they keep getting peritonitis, then the peritoneum starts to get scarred. And then the efficiency of the peritoneal dialysis goes down. So, so that's one of the more common reasons why people have to throw in the towel and give up peritoneal dialysis because they've had so many bouts of peritonitis, now the peritoneum is scarred, just inefficient. And, and mean old Jim Gregoire has to walk in the room and say, 
guess what? I just think your dialysis just isn't working. It's time to switch to in-center hemodialysis. And the patient gets sad and say, I don't want to switch to in-center hemodialysis. But sometimes we have to. Now you talk about yourself as being the bad guy in that situation. <laughs> and so we shouldn't have to be the bad guy in the ED, I'm assuming, then telling them it didn't work. On swell guy like you, Vink, I can't ever imagine you being the bad guy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Ah, well, yeah. It's so on the it's, record. <laughs> <laughs> it's a combination <laughs> thing. So, yeah, it's it, it's usually there's some warning that the peritoneal dialysis is failing. Okay. You know, their BUN's not well controlled, their electrolytes aren't controlled. But once in a while, it's just out of the blue. So they're going along fine. And boom, they get a bad peritonitis. And it's you know, maybe they're even septic and it's, you know, maybe the catheter itself is infected. There's a tunnel infection. And then we got to remove the catheter and switch over to hemodialysis. Can we talk for a minute about how exactly to make this diagnosis and a little bit more about treatment? Because, um, you know, empirically we'll start some IV antibiotics, but maybe that, that won't help us enough in this circumstance. But there are a lot of circumstances where an ED doc might be uh, the only physician in the hospital at night. And so what do they need to make this diagnosis and and uh, what steps should they follow? Yeah, so diagnosis, usually not too hard to make. So it's a peritoneal dialysis patient with pain and, and cloudy dialysis fluid. And pretty much that's going to be peritonitis. So. And then we got to try to get a culture okay. And usually a culture gives us guides for treatment. We've got a, a, a algorithm we follow as far as which antibiotics to use. So we usually have to start off with something to cover gram-positive organs, because it's often a staph. And we also have to pick an antibiotic to cover gram-negative organism. Okay, usually start with dual therapy like that, and then wait for the culture result, and then the culture result gives us guidance. Uh, and if I were a lonely doctor in an emergency department uh, all by myself, uh, I, uh, I would just like pass on the message they're probably going to be successful okay whichever uh, antibiotic or route they go it's it's going to work out okay yeah so they you know they're gonna if they want to start some intravenous antibiotic or oral antibiotic and then the patient needs to contact the peritoneal dialysis center and the, then the peritoneal dialysis center will take it from there and get the patient going on some um, peritoneal instilled antibiotics and patient of course might have to go in probably have to be admitted in a lot of those cases. And then the primary team or with help of nephrology can manage the antibiotics from there. That's really helpful. Mm -hmm. So in terms of actually making the diagnosis, we need some fluid. Need uh, some fluid to get a cell count. Okay. And we need a culture. And how, how long do we leave that fluid in so that we get an accurate representation. Okay, not very long. So, so often we'll have one of our dialysis nurses go down to the emergency room. Okay, but it could be an um, emergency department nurse and they just instill some perit peritoneal dialysis fluid, let it sit there for a few minutes, okay, and then withdraw it and send it for microscopy and for culture. I'm having some difficulty picturing what peritoneal dialysis fluid should look like, the input fluid, as well as the output fluid. What about you, Alex? This would be one of those situations where the patient says it looks cloudy, and I'd say, I definitely agree. I trust ah, you. That yes, looks exactly. Like much cloudier than the <laughs> fluid I normally Okay, yes, yeah, so PD fluid is clear. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. Just got a lot of sugar and a 
some electrolytes in it. And what you got to do, bank, is when you're looking at how your stocks are doing, okay, you take your newspaper, okay, and you put it, a, and you look to see if you can read the newspaper through the fluid. And if you can, okay, then it's clear. And the patients actually taught that. If they can't read something through the peritoneal fluid, then it's suspicious that's cloudy and there's infection going on. Is there a color to it at all? Uh, no. No. Okay. Both dialysate going in and yeah. Fluid so as it's coming out, you know, might have it's going to have some protein. Okay, so okay. it's going to take on a little bit of a serous color to it. Uh, yeah. Okay, and that that's an issue of uh, protein loss. So, yeah, our nutrition is really a big, big thing in our dialysis patients with peritoneal dialysis. They're always losing some nutrition and losing some protein. So we pay attention to that. As a uh, step from there, would it help for us to be giving them albumin and things? Uh, it's not identical to protein, but... No. No. Is there anything we should be thinking or doing for them related to that? Uh, well, probably not so much in the emergency department, uh, but here's an interesting bit of info. One of the biggest predictors of how a patient is doing at this moment in time is the serum albumin. Okay, and you guys know, wait a minute, serum albumin, a lot of things affect that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, we, don't, we don't find that a reliable test. Guess what? In dialysis in general, hemodialysis, peritoneal dialysis, the serum albumin is really predictive of outcomes. Serum albumin is going up. Wow, that's good. Serum albumin is going down. Uh-oh. And why is it so predictive? Well, it's just kind of sense of the, just the general health, but also kind of a, a marker of nutrition. And it just points out that nutrition is really, really important in our dialysis patients uh, and we we pay attention to that so good old medicare requires us to do a assessment of our dialysis patients nutrition every month and you know people have studied what would be the best way to do that hand strength gait uh, other things uh, but lo and behold albumin is uh, a good marker of their nutrition and that's what uh, medicare requires us to check every month so so you guys will see when the patient comes to the emergency department, you'll see some frail dialysis patients. Uh, and, and often those are people that have been in the emergency department a lot and, uh, and they're patients that are ill. Uh, and the, the thing you guys don't get a good chance to see in the emergency department is patients doing so well. So there's some long-term dialysis patients that are never in the hospital. It's hard to believe. Okay, they're doing great. And and their nutritional status and things like this are fine. Uh, uh, and, oh, we have patients who get started on dialysis mostly for fluid removal. They might have congestive heart failure. And before they get started on dialysis, wow, they're in the hospital a lot. Volume overload, volume overload, get started on dialysis and never go in the hospital again for several years. So. I really appreciate you encouraging me to follow the albumin more closely. I. <laughs> I hesitate to admit that it's uh, it's one of those values that pops up red, and I go, all right, how, how's the K, how's the sodium, things like that, that I feel I feel that I will intervene on directly, and so this is a lesson to me to pay pay more attention to not only the kidneys, but the, the protein. Mm -hmm. All right. Before we transition topics, I want to jump in with some additional things about peritoneal dialysis. There are two forms of peritoneal dialysis, continuous ambulatory peritoneal dialysis, which involves two bags, 
gravity pulling in the dialysate into the peritoneum, it being allowed to dwell in the abdomen for a period of time, and then an effluent drained out into another bag lower down. This is done several times during the day while the patient is awake and permitted to go about most normal activities. The other is termed automated peritoneal dialysis or continuous cycling peritoneal dialysis. This is the one that Dr. Gregoire mentions happens at night. It involves a machine that is cycling the dialysate into the abdomen at night, allowing it to dwell, and then collecting the effluent for disposal in the morning. These patients have several cycles of this throughout the night and then usually have an infusion of dialysate in the morning, and that is allowed to dwell in the abdomen throughout the day before again returning to bed and doing this again. Each one of these cycles, by the way, in both forms of peritoneal dialysis is called an exchange. Both groups are at risk for peritonitis, as Dr. Gregoire mentioned. We need to be concerned about peritonitis when these patients report abdominal pain, often generalized, and if they have cloudy effluent. Each of these features are seen in 85 plus percent of patients who go on to have a diagnosis of peritonitis. You may be wondering if the patient would also have a fever or nausea or other symptoms. Fever, for example, is reported in 25 to 50 percent of patients and nausea and vomiting are similar as well. 25 to 50 percent of patients who go on to have a diagnosis of peritonitis related to peritoneal dialysis. So the two real hallmarks are, as Dr. Gregoire mentioned, abdominal pain and cloudy fluid. Cloudy fluid may not always be present at the same time as pain. Pain is often the first symptom and fluid change can take even a day or two to follow. Also, some reports suggest that continuous cycling peritoneal dialysis, again, that is the nighttime machine-based peritoneal dialysis, is slightly more associated with normal fluid appearance despite having peritonitis. Still, overwhelmingly, patients will likely have abnormal fluid, though. Also, cloudy fluid is not pathognomonic for peritonitis. There are a few other things that can cause this. On the list of things that we should be aware of as emergency physicians or emergency practitioners, a triglyceride or lipid leak, which has a host of causes in itself related to liver or pancreas or gallbladder issues, is an important one. Also, there can be a lot of fibrin that is released after a period of peritonitis, and that itself may cause the fluid to look cloudy. There are some reports that prolonged periods without peritoneal dialysis can be associated with cloudiness, and a very long or excessive dwell time can be associated with cloudiness of the fluid as well. The severity of abdominal pain may correlate with the causative organism. Specifically, streptococcal infection or fungal peritonitis are thought to have more severe abdominal pain. Let's take a look at testing. Dr. Gregoire mentions cell count and differential as well as fluid culture. The fluid usually has eight white blood cells per cubic millimeter. So if it's over a hundred white cells per cubic millimeter, that is felt to be consistent with a presumptive diagnosis of peritonitis. Sometimes the fluid may result in white blood cell counts that are greater than eight, but less than 100 per cubic millimeter of fluid. And in these instances, we should look for a neutrophil percentage of greater than 50% as again, lab confirmation of a presumptive diagnosis of peritonitis. These are different criteria than when we look for spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, for example, where we look primarily at the PMNs or absolute neutrophil count within the fluid. 
and in those instances we're looking for values greater than 250 cells per cubic millimeter. In both instances, whether it's peritonitis from peritoneal dialysis or spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, one of the first and important things that we as emergency practitioners are charged with doing is ruling out secondary causes of peritonitis, such as peritonitis from appendicitis or intestinal perforation or diverticulitis with microabscess, among many other causes. This is important because these secondary episodes of peritonitis usually have worse outcomes for the patient and require different treatments than spontaneous bacterial peritonitis and certainly worse than peritonitis from peritoneal dialysis. So, some of the testing we can obtain from the fluid can help us in distinguishing secondary causes from these primary conditions. Certainly they're not diagnostic, but they can add more evidence to point us in that direction or raise our suspicion. Some of these tests include lactate dehydrogenase or LDH, amylase, protein, glucose. Okay, let's transition back to the discussion with Dr. Gregoire. Jim, I'd like to transition to an area that I've seen a lot of change in my career already. That is related to acute kidney injury. Help me understand where we are now in diagnosing acute kidney injury, staging it, etc. Yeah, we're, we're getting better. Uh, yeah, and, and I recently saw a patient in the hospital and her creatinine didn't start going up for a few days, okay? Um, but we knew she had acute kidney injury, okay? Her urine output was down, way down. She was retaining fluid. Her electrolytes were going out of control, but the serum creatinine didn't start going up for a couple of days. And I said to the residents, well, this is a classic case, and it points out that the creatinine itself is not the greatest marker for acute kidney injury because there often is some like. So people are trying to come up with some other markers for acute kidney injury so we can detect it early. Uh, and all things that people are doing, they're measuring uh, biomarkers in the urine different proteins that are released by the renal tubular epithelial cells. Uh, so after procedures, after surgery, after contrast studies, people will measure urine proteins. There's one called NGAL. There's other small little proteins released by the tubular cells. And they'll see those levels go up early, long before the creatinine goes up. And, and then we can recognize, ah, this is acute kidney injury just starting to happen. And you can say, yeah, big deal. So what if you detect it early? Well, that's going to help us out a lot because down the line, we're going to find some interventions. So, so when a patient is just right in the early throes of AKI, we'll recognize that early and then we can do something about it uh, and, and, and recognize that uh, there's, uh, there was a neat study in a recent issue of, the, of JAMA. Okay, it was from Canada, and in their good old epic system, they had all these bells and whistles that would go off if there was any ever any signs of AKI. Okay, and so the doctors were alerted. Okay, so so the doctors were randomized either to having all these bells and whistles in the in the medical health record to alert them versus standard of care and. When the, when the doctor was getting all these messages, then interventions were done to, to help the acute kidney injury. So, so yeah, rec early recognition is something we're really trying to do to, to find AKI early. Uh, 
Uh, way back when, when I was arrested, we'd see a cratty go up saying, yeah, big deal. <laughs> right. It's a kidney problem, maybe. Uh, so what? Uh, but now we try to recognize it early so we can do something about it and maybe make some life-changing interventions. So maybe, wow, it's the first sign of sepsis with acute kidney injury. Now we can give some fluids and start some antibiotics early. Uh, and so that's kind of where we're going with AKI. And yes, there's all different ways to recognize it based on the year and output and how much the creatinine goes up. But the things will fool us, okay? So we saw a patient in the hospital recently, creatinine 0.9. Okay, wow, maybe better than my creatinine. Guess what? She had severe kidney injury. How could that be? Well, guess what? Her baseline creatinine 0.5. Okay, so her, her serum creatinine basically doubled. Okay, so it was that, that big step up in the cranium that told us this was AKI. So we got to look at, you know, what the previous levels were. The level at this moment in time maybe doesn't tell us. We got to look at how it's been changing. Mm-hmm. What type of variability would we expect in a creatinine? To me, a uh-huh. 0.4 variation ah. might be within the standard normal, I feel okay. like. Okay, yeah, You're, there will be some variation. By the way, it's a little background information. Serum creatinine, that's one of the most standardized tests in all the land. Okay, so that that particular lab processing is very well worked out. You go from lab to lab, they're going to do the serum creatinine in the same way, so the result is quite reliable, okay? But you're right, the, the number can vary a lot depending on fluid input and, and medications. Uh, but uh, if we see a significant change in the creatinine, that should trigger us to think this could be an AKI. Mm-hmm. Let me... See how you'd approach two different cases. In one case, imagine a 40-year-old man coming to the ED for shortness of breath, and they're found to have a pneumonia, and they have a creatinine that has increased, let's say double, but still within the normal range. Mm-hmm. And the other 40-year-old man... By the way, I'd say I'm very suspicious of AKI in that case. Uh, I'd be very suspicious that something's happened with the kidneys. Um, maybe it's just pre-renal azotemia from just not eating and drinking well in the setting of pneumonia. Maybe it's been so bad that it's got ATN. Um, yep. And and then we always think about some weird and wacky things, even like an infection-associated glomerulonephritis. So and just seeing that creatinine going up makes me think about it. Uh, yeah. yeah. And since we're into that case, one of the things I struggle with is when I've made sure that they're oxygenating well, we've ruled out pneumonia, heart problems, etc. I would normally send this person home. Is that okay if the creatinine is within the normal range but has doubled? Okay, so could be okay. It could be bad. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, this is how I feel at the end of a yes. lot of my shows. <laughs> when our spouse asks us how the day went. Yeah, it could have gone okay. We'll, we'll see tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. Ah, uh, oh, well, yeah, so I guess it's the whole picture, okay? So just a, a rising creatinine. You know, that doesn't make me sweat too much if the patient's otherwise stable. Okay. okay. If they're feeling fine, yeah. their hemodynamics are fine, if their creatinine's gone up, well, yes, I'm thinking there is some kidney problem, but as long as I've got some follow-up for the right. patient, then I'm okay. Yeah. Is there a number that would be too high? In this case, it was within the normal range, but let's say it's Two. Yeah, probably no number that would bother me, okay. Um, it's about and, how the patient yeah, looks. Yeah, basically it's how the patient looks. Uh, yeah, and the thing that uh, will often throw clinicians off 
is they'll see the creatinine go, for example, from 4.5 to 4.9. They say, wow, 4.5 to 4.9. Wow, the kidney function is really, really going down. But guess what? That rise from 4.5 to 4.5 is just a minor change in GFR. Meanwhile, the creatinine going from 1 to 1.5, that represents a big change in mm. GFR. So, okay. Mm-hmm. And if I saw someone go from 1 to 1.5, but their electrolytes were okay, their urine output was okay, they're feeling okay, uh, I, I'd be nervous about which way things are going okay, but if they got some follow-up, I'd be okay, yeah. And I might look at their medications and say, whoa, maybe we you know, need to torpedo your ACE inhibitor temporarily until you see your primary doctor. Uh, maybe I'd better not prescribe. I can almost hardly even say it. Maybe I better not prescribe a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory <laughs> drug. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is, when I see it go from one to one point five, go ahead and proceed with my catorolac, diuresis, and uh, full body CT scan with contrast. Don't forget amino black acids for <laughs> the pneumonia. Okay. Uh, really looking at the clinical picture is most valuable. Yes, sir. In terms of a recheck time frame for that creatinine, do you think three, four days is okay, or is that too long? Uh, no, most of the time, three, four days will probably be okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course, we always like to know sooner rather than later, but I realize getting follow-up can be difficult. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I would say to the patient, we're going to check it as soon as we can. Uh, you're just going to have to watch how you're doing and watch how you're feeling, watch your urine output and... Let us know if something changes. So try to get in earlier needed. Uh, the other case I was going to contrast this with. So in, in ooh, this contrast. case. There you go. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> My kidneys are shaking. <laughs> in that case, I was trying to give the scenario in which we were kind of blindsided by the creatinine rise. But let's contrast that to the same 40-year-old man, otherwise in good health, but is experiencing a gastroenteric illness, having a lot of GI outputs, having difficulty keeping up with his hydration and his creatinine has increased. Does that make you more comfortable in that situation, assuming we hydrate them and get close follow-up, or less comfortable than? Yeah, if I got an obvious cause for the AKI, then I feel good. Okay, yeah, I'd say, wow, this is likely volume contraction, um, and hopefully it's still just pre-renal azotemia. Okay, yeah, and hopefully it hasn't been so much volume contraction that they've gone on to develop tubular necrosis um, and that is a spectrum okay so yeah some people are, lose a lot of fluid their gfr goes down they're still making urine we give fluid and their kidney function comes back that's pre-renal azotemia some people lose a lot of fluid and their gfr goes down and we give fluid wait a minute don't get any better wow should have gotten better what's going on well unfortunately their pre-renal azotemia was so bad and so prolonged and they got ischemic tubular necrosis and then the management kind of shifts then so when they're in that pre-renal phase wow then we we can aggressively hydrate them and monitor them and watch out we're not overloading them but wow once they get into that ischemic atn phase then it's a different story and we should try to avoid causing renal adult respiratory distress syndrome some people call it that means the person's got locked in socked in ATN and and now we think oh kidney function slow 
let's give them a lot of fluids. Maybe it'll help. Whoa, if they've got socked in ATN, where's all that fluid going to go? It's going to go into their lungs and they get pulmonary edema and off to the ICU they go. Uh, so so looking at those patients with acute kidney injury, what's the urine output? The urine output's there. If there's some urine output, uh, you know, I feel better about giving fluids. If they really seem volume contracted, I'm feeling good about giving fluids. But if it's just, whoa, low kidney function, then I got to think twice about giving fluids. And so we're operating on uh, a similar definition, and probably there's a lot of definitions, but in my sort of entry-level definition, when we're using the term AKI, one definition might be increase in the creatinine of something like 0.3, a doubling of the baseline creatinine, and or a, a change in the urine output. Is that is that exactly. how? Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm sweating. I, I uh, didn't have that pulled up and, and uh, I'm trying to recite that. And you got it. A lot of potential for error. And so the doubling from baseline, is, does that mean when it's within a normal value and it's doubled? Is that what we're saying? Or 1.5 to 3? Just any doubling. Okay. Yeah. Because if it's 1.5 to 3, that seems like it would be way more than the 0.3. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I see. Okay. Yeah. And those definitions are good. They help us categorize the severity of the acute kidney injury, okay? And that kind of helps the team, the primary physicians, and nephrologists kind of know how bad it is and what might need to be done, okay? And also give us some prognostic information. Um, so all, all those categorizations, categorizations are good. Um, and, of course, patients uh, vary. I want to jump in briefly. Alex just gave a wonderful working definition for acute kidney injury, and I think that's the one I'm probably going to remember. However, we should all be aware there is a document or guideline known as the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes Guideline, and that defines acute kidney injury very slightly differently. Specifically, it says an increase in serum creatinine by greater than or equal to 0.3 milligrams per deciliter within 48 hours or an increase in serum creatinine to greater than or equal to 1.5 times baseline, which is known or presumed to have occurred within the prior seven days, or thirdly, a urine output volume under 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour for six hours. Okay, let's get back. So our patient that we've been talking about, he has uh, a prerenal azotemia, and we've loaded him with fluids and in the ED, uh, as is our duty. And, and we're not seeing a lot of urine output. And at this point, I give a call uh, to my incredible ICU nephrologist for some advice. And usually they say, give them a little Lasix. And our perspective on Lasix sometimes is different at times, I feel. Um, where I might, I, uh, uh, the, the dosing is viewed differently. Um, can you share why sometimes we use Lasix in these circumstances? And uh, and I always joke that a standard dose here is like 100 milligrams <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> share with me more about how all this works. Yes, yeah, so generally we're comfortable giving prosomide or other loop diuretics as long as the effective circulatory volume has been restored. Okay, so if you've given fluids and you feel like the effective circulatory volume is fine, then I'd feel comfortable giving a loop diuretic. And how do I know the effective circulatory volume has been restored while the blood pressure's 
come up, the heart rates come down, the person's perfusing their extremities, and I say the effective circulatory volume is restored. And then we can give a loop diuretic, and usually there's no, not too many consequences of giving a high dose, okay? And you say, wow, patients, um, they've, they've never taken a loop diuretic before. Shouldn't I start with a low, low dose? But if their kidney function is poor, they're going to need a high dose, okay? Uh, and we generally like to give a high dose just to know if they're going to respond or not, okay? We, we say, wow, the kidney function's poor. Got to give them something to see if we can generate some urine, urine output. Uh, and why are we trying to generate some urine output? Well, we're just going to help to offload some fluid, get some clearance, okay? Does, does giving the frosmide really alter their prognosis or the like? Not, not so much, but just going to make their management easier if they get some response to the ferrosamide. There is a, a formal test called the ferrosamide stress test, and this was developed, uh, and what the researchers did is they give patients one milligram per kilogram of ferrosamide, okay? And they'd see how much urine output was over the next four hours. And if it was less than 400 hours, it's very predicted that the person was going to need dialysis. So that was, that's kind of a formal way to assess the prognosis of the kidney function. But if we've given someone a lot of fluid and they're still not making urine, then we go ahead and, and give them a loop diuretic. And it could, could be ferrosamide, could be buminidine, could be... Uh, Ferrosamide, we don't really have a big preference there. Uh, and generally, we give plenty of diuretic. And if the patient is on the floor in the hospital, you'll see us give 160 to 200 milligrams of furosemide just to see if we, we can get a response. In this example, should I think of the furosemide as functioning as a temporary jumpstart for the kidney or a treatment that they're going to need moving forward? Yeah, so, so people have wondered if the furosemide uh, can do some things to, to help the kidneys. So, you know, the kidney spends 99% of its oxygen on transporting sodium, okay? So people have wondered, wow, maybe if we give furosemide, it's going to just reduce the oxygen demand of the kidneys and maybe help their kidney recovery. But that didn't really seem to hold up in, in studies. But the advantage of the furosemide loop diuretics is just to help get some urine output up. Uh, help with some clearance, help keep the potassium from going too high, uh, help keep the volume from going too high, make it less likely we have to do dialysis. You might see a person who's got AKI, and, and by giving them a loop diuretic, then you start some urine output, and you might, you might save, them for, save them from other complications down the line. Interestingly, I had not heard of a furosemide stress test, but instead I've always been told one cc of urine output for every one milligram of furosemide each hour is an ideal response. And that seems to mm -hmm. be very consistent with the stress test when I yeah. do the math. Okay. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Yes, that was a, a formal study. Uh, and they, they were looking for what were some predictors of who would need dialysis. They were looking at urine biomarkers, and they did this this furosemide stress test, and turned out the furosemide stress test was the best predictor of who will need dialysis short term. And so up in the intensive care unit, you'll see that done. So our patient is getting worse, as uh, our example patient always does. 
And so we've <laughs> given the Lasix and we haven't haven't turned things around. When do you uh, that, start? At that point, I'd say that sounds like socked in acute kidney injury. Okay. Um, yeah. And then we got to, then, then we got to modify our care a little bit. Uh, so then we got to pay attention to electrolytes, pay attention to the respiratory status. Um, and what types of things do you look at to pull the trigger on placing a, a temporary or tunneled catheter? Mm-hmm. Yep. So th- that comes up a lot. And yeah, so a little background. Does early dialysis make a difference? Okay. Byline is probably not. Okay. Hmm. So you'd say, wow, maybe we get first start on dialysis. Maybe we're going to save them. They'll do better, less likely to be in the hospital. Doesn't seem that's been studied. So early dialysis. So we generally do dialysis when we feel like we need to do it. Okay. Uh, And so when do we feel like we need to do it? They're not responding to the loop diuretic and they're starting to get electrolyte problems, they're starting to get fluid overload, and they're getting symptoms of uremia, which usually consists of altered mental status, nausea, diminished appetite, fatigue. Then we say, boy, oh boy, it's time to start dialysis. (laughs) This is uh, probably a very basic question, but it's something that I have faced. What, when I'm picking a temporary dialysis catheter, such as a Merker catheter, something like that, that I'm going to place in the ED. How do I pick the right size for a patient? Ah, good question. So the, the pretty much standard sizes, uh, and and there's, there's different ways you can assess the, the length of the catheters. Uh, and mostly you're going to be okay. So so when we're putting in a temporary hemodialysis catheter, where do we like to do that? We like to do that in the right internal jugular vein. That's by far and away, okay? We don't like subclavian temporary dialysis catheters because the high rate of causing stenosis in the subclavian vein. If we cause a stenosis in the subclavian vein, then it's going to be hard for the patient to get a fistula later in life. So if they get a fistula, then they always be impaired blood flow returning from the arm. So we much prefer an internal jugular vein catheter, preferably on the right side. And because those catheters are stiff and larger bore, it's better to go right side. It's hard. Right. Yeah, straight shot. Yeah, left side is, is kind of tough. Yeah, femoral catheter is an option, though. Uh, so if some patient is really quite dysmic, can't lie down for an internal jugular catheter, then a femoral catheter is fine, okay? And people say, whoa, wait a minute, that's going to cause a bad infection? That's been studied. So the, the rate of femoral dialysis catheter infection is higher than internal jugular, but not extremely high. Okay, so if we put a femoral catheter in, Use it for a session or two of dialysis to get the person more stable, get the fluid off, and later we can transition it to an internal jugular catheter. Uh, one of my colleagues who does a lot of nephrology ICU, he really likes the femoral catheter because patients can have that done while they're sitting up. And along those lines, I often see that my patients get a variety of dialysis options that are confusing to me, different things. Can you walk through those and, and why one? Might pick one or the other. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's different ways to do uh, acute dialysis uh, and acute hemodialysis. By the way, let me just mention acute peritoneal dialysis. Okay. Can be done. Hmm. Acute peritoneal dialysis. It's hard to orchestrate though. Okay. 
but it's something that's available for little tiny babies, okay? So a little tiny baby with small little veins, hard to put in a hemodialysis catheter. So we would consider peritoneal dialysis for a youngster. Um, and it's kind of hard to orchestrate acute peritoneal dialysis because I eh, got to maybe have general anesthesia to put in the peritoneal dialysis catheter. Although some places will put in a peritoneal dial ca- dialysis catheter right at the bedside. So usually acute hemodialysis, Acute dialysis is acute hemodialysis. And what are the options for acute hemodialysis? Basically boils down to intermittent hemodialysis, which is usually three to four hours versus continuous hemodialysis. And then there's different types of continuous hemodialysis. Uh, And which works better? The intermittent where it's three or four sessions of dialysis or the so much dialysis that blood pressure might drop, or is the continuous dialysis better over 24 hours where it's just kind of a slow trickle of dialysis, the hemodynamics might be more stable? Guess what? Outcomes are the same. Okay. Yeah, and that always surprises nephrologists because up in the intensive care unit, we love to do continuous hemodialysis where it's just a slow trickle of dialysis. We can adjust it hour by hour. We could change their fluids. We thought, ah, Yes, continuous 24-hour dialysis is going to make a big difference. And guess what? Yeah, studies show it's not any different results for with intermittent hemodialysis. And why is that? And probably the bottom line is the dialysis working fine both modalities. Just the patients are so sick. Okay, we just can't overcome all their other or overcome all their other other comorbidities. And so, and there are some instances where intermittent just the two to three to four hours of hemodialysis is better than continuous hemodialysis okay so doctors in the emergency department and see a sick person we say ah easy we'll just send them up for for continuous 24-hour hemodialysis there might be a case where intermittent hemodialysis would be better and two examples would be someone with severe hyperkalemia okay because the the intermittent hemodialysis is more rapid. We're going to get better control of potassium. And another a good indication for doing intermittent hemodialysis would be a poisoning. Again, we get more clearance. Uh, so we in nephrology, we even forget about that. We get so used to putting our really sick patients on continuous dialysis. Get There are some indications for intermittent hemodialysis is better up. Uh, but if you went up to the intensive care unit, you'd see most of the patients are getting continuous dialysis that's run by the dial- the, uh, the ICU nurse. Um, it goes well, and again, we like it because they can adjust it hour to hour, give fluid adjustments hour to hour. Here are a few other notes on AKI that Alex and I want to pass on. Earlier, I mentioned the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes Guideline, or KDIGO. And that guideline outlines the stages of AKI severity ranging from mild disease, or stage 1, to severe disease at stage 3. Let's work backward from stage 3 and go over them. Stage 3 kidney disease, or acute kidney injury, is when there is an increase in serum creatinine to 3 times baseline, or an increase in creatinine greater than or equal to 4 mg per deciliter, or a reduction in urine output less than 0.3 milligrams per kilogram per hour for more than 24 hours, or there is anuria 
for 12 or greater hours, or the patient needs kidney replacement therapy, or finally, in patients under 18 years of age who have a decrease in estimated glomerular filtration rate to under 35. The other two stages are much easier. Stage 2 is an increase in serum creatinine 2 to 2.9 times baseline, or reduction in urine output to under 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour for 12 or greater hours. Stage 1 is creatinine increase to 1.5 to 1.9 times baseline, or an increase in creatinine by 0.3 milligrams per deciliter, or a reduction in urine output to under 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour for 6 to 12 hours. The criteria are detailed, and there are many, so I highly recommend that either you pull it up when your patient clinical encounters demand it, or that you spend some time looking at them and thinking about them to understand some of the nuance there. Another piece of information that Alex and I thought would be helpful is to understand some of the guidance that our other specialty colleagues are receiving as to when they should send patients to the emergency department with acute kidney injury. For example, patients with stage 2 or stage 3 AKI should be referred to the emergency department. Patients with stage 1 AKI who have an unclear cause, unknown duration or trajectory of their elevated creatinine, or there's a concern that their AKI could not be rapidly reversed with simple interventions like fluids or medication adjustment should be referred to the emergency department. And patients with AKI of any stage who are seen in a resource-limited outpatient setting where the immediate evaluation and interventions needed for their AKI even if their staging doesn't mandate ED referral, those interventions or evaluations require ED referral, they too should come to the emergency department. Also, there were some indications for when urgent nephrology referral might be useful, and these were really meant for outpatient providers. If their patient doesn't require ED referral, when should they send them to nephrology? But I think that might guide us as well as to when we should be thinking a patient requires more urgent nephrology referral. And these include when initial interventions fail to substantially improve the kidney injury, when you suspect glomerulonephritis, and that would really mean when there's additional blood or protein in the urine in addition to the AKI, or when the patient's needs for a nephrologist might be really about coordinating care amidst other services, such as when your patient with AKI also is getting chemotherapy, or maybe it's the result of or pre-evaluation for a complex surgical procedure, and having multiple specialties interacting, including a nephrologist, might be helpful. This is also a good time, we thought, to review the indications for urgent or emergent dialysis um, or kidney replacement therapy. And really, we're talking about severe pulmonary edema, certain acute toxidromes, severe metabolic acidosis, in particular pH under 7.1, and when there's hypervolemia, unless there's an alternative way to correct this, such as when the patient has DKA, for example. Additionally, patients with severe uremia, or hyperkalemia over 6.5 that also have cardiac conduction problems or severe weakness, or even lower levels of hyperkalemia, but where you are concerned that that value is going to continue to rise, such as with rhabdomyolysis. 
these are all indications for urgent or emergent dialysis. Now, with that said, as Dr. Gregoire mentioned, the timing of dialysis doesn't have to be immediate in many cases, and that is okay. I think it's also important to stress Dr. Gregoire's guidance on who needs to stay in the hospital versus go home from the ED when there's acute kidney injury identified. It's not dependent upon a single value or any value necessarily, but rather the overall clinical picture, the likelihood of the patient being able to get close follow-up and their understanding and ability to follow through on that follow-up or return to the ED if things are worsening. It means we need to talk to our patients and find a solution that fits that unique context and probably explain how and why we came to that decision in our documentation so that others can follow along when needed. Okay, let's get back to the discussion. If I could change gears just a little bit, you've mentioned electrolyte derangements a couple of times, and I feel really comfortable with sodium and potassium. But oh, one right. that comes up a lot. <laughs> Not as comfortable as you. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. But for my setting. But I absolutely dread phosphorus. I don't know what to watch out for clinically related to phosphorus derangements. I don't know how to manage phosphorus levels that are too high or too low. Can you help enlighten me? Okay, yeah. So phosphorus, it, it can be acute phosphorus problems and chronic phosphorus problems. Uh, and a person with end-stage renal disease who has chronic hyperphosphatemia, probably not much you need to do, honestly, okay? That's just a dialysis issue. Uh, the, the nephrologist ne needs to keep working on that. Chronic hyperphosphatemia, though, is something we're always paying attention to. Uh, so... Would I expect any clinical manifestation of uh, Not so much acutely, okay. Um, so in the phosphorus high, we don't like it because it stimulates parathyroid hormone. Okay. And think your parathyroid hormone level today is probably around 25 to 50, okay. Uh, okay. And person with primary hyperparathyroidism, their PTH level might be around, oh, 80 to 100. Guess what? A dialysis patient, PTH, 300. 500, 1,000, 2,000. The parathyroid hormone levels are outrageous, okay? And that's stimulated by the high phosphorus level. So we really don't like the, the hyperphosphatemia long-term. Mm -hmm. It's hard on their bone health. Yeah. Severe secondary hyperparathyroidism causes a lot of problems. Not so many acute problems in a chronic dialysis patient. Uh, okay. But acute hyperphosphatemia without in, in in the absence of chronic dialysis, mm -hmm. that's a big issue, okay? So acute hyperphosphatemia, let's say someone goes through, they got normal kidney function, they go through chemotherapy, and they get tumor lysis syndrome, and mm -hmm. all their cells are rupturing, rupturing, and now their phosphorus level goes really, really high. They haven't had hyperphosphatemia before. Acute hyperphosphatemia, that's bad, okay? Because what happens? The phosphorus combines with the calcium and causes the calcium and phosphorus to precipitate in tissues, uh, soft tissues, vessels, precipitate in the kidneys, other organs, uh, and kind of can cause a lot of problems. Uh, yeah, so if we ever saw a case of acute hyperphosphatemia, then what would we do? We would hydrate the person up as best we can, and, and then we would add a loop diuretic cause forced diuresis to cause the phosphorus to be excreted in the kidneys. But guess what? Sometimes in those acute, severe hyperphosphatemic cases, the phosphorus is so high and the kidney function has gone down. The calcium and phosphorus is causing precipitation in the kidneys, and now the kidney function has gone down. 
And what can we do in that case? Guess what? Might have to do dialysis to remove all that acute hyperphosphatemia. Yeah. Yeah. So then on the other end of the spectrum is hypophosphatemia. Yeah. And what's so bad about hypophosphatemia? Guess what? I'm thinking a few of my muscle cells and brain cells and heart cells are needing ATP, okay? And if we get hypophosphatemic, then our body just can't generate ATP. Okay, and the phosphorus level's got to be really low, though, before it starts causing symptoms. So phosphorus level, eh, normal, you know, it's above 2.5. Level of 1.5, cause symptoms? Eh, probably not. Level of 1, eh, might be starting to see symptoms. And below 1, yeah, then we see weakness cardiac rhythm problems, cardiac contractility problems. So, so hypophosphatemia can be serious. And do we ever see that in a kidney dialysis patient? Yes, unfortunately. If they're just kind of failing to thrive, they've got some malnutrition, they're not eating well, they're still taking their phosphorus binders, and we can see hypophosphatemia, and that, and that can be bad, cause weakness and the like. So what do we do in a situation like that? Then we we, if it's a dialysis patient, stop their phosphorus binder. We might give them some phosphorus intravenously, and we might even have to modify their diet, take them off the mean old renal diet and, and get them to eat a little more phosphorus. So. That's so helpful. I feel like the next time the medical student or resident tells me about the phosphorus, I, <laughs> I think I know what to do with that now. So. All right. The other question I have, I guess might be more perspective, but I had a faculty member when I was a resident tell me that magnesium levels represent only a, a fraction of the total body magnesium and that using potassium as a surrogate for that mag level might be more helpful uh, on when to replenish, etc. Yeah, that's fair. Yep, so magnesium is mostly intracellular. Um, uh, potassium is the main intracellular cation. Magnesium is number two. Uh, Yep, magnesium's kind of the forgotten cation, okay? We know a lot about sodium. We know a lot about potassium. We know a lot about calcium. Kind of don't know ma- magnesium so well. And and here I am, a nephrologist, but I have to admit, we don't really understand how well magne- how magnesium is transported in the kidneys that well. We don't really understand the transport processes. Uh, and, yeah, we forget about checking magnesium levels, so... So, you know, it's not part of our usual chemistry panel, so we'll miss magnesium problems, uh, and, we'll, and we'll see people with hypokalemia, and we'll forget to check the magnesium level, and oops, can't replace the potassium very well if we don't replace the magnesium, uh, and vice versa, we'll see people with other potassium problems, and forget to check the magnesium problem, there it is. They were um, telling me this in the context of not finding value in checking the le- the level, mm-hmm. and rather just giving magnesium if the K is low. What do you think of that? Yeah. Not checking the mag level since it represents such a small portion of the total body mag. Okay, so so the so I can understand that. Okay, uh, yes. So that's true for a lot of electrolytes. The serum level is is just a small portion of the total body levels. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but I would argue that we should check the magnesium level. Um, okay. We should always be thinking about it. We should, should consider it. Um, and if we ever do find hypomagnesemia, wow, then they probably do have a major deficiency in, in magnesium. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And how does phosphorus levels translate? Would you think they represent more accurately total body phosphorus? Yeah. Okay. okay. So, 
the phosphorus is stored in bones, stored in cells, but a large, but a portion of it is uh, intravascular. Uh, mm-hmm. Yep. And hypermagnesemia will come up not so often. Okay. Uh, yeah. So we in nephrology were always paying attention to avoid hypermagnesemia. So our kidney patients, they're just not able to get rid of magnesium very well. So we have to watch out. We don't give them magnesium supplements. Uh, uh, we have to watch out giving certain enemas that contain magnesium. We have to watch out about giving antacids that contain magnesium. Uh, it'd be very easy for a kidney patient to get hypermagnesemic. So a person with kidney, normal kidney function, they take an extra magnesium. They take in extra magnesium in their diet and legumes and, and beans and, and fruits and things. They're, if they take in a lot of magnesium, they're going to excrete that magnesium by their kidneys. But a person with kidney disease takes an extra magnesium in their diet or in supplements or medication. Like, whoa, they quickly get hypermagnesemic, and that could be fatal, okay? That's going to cause loss of reflexes and, and weaknesses. Uh, and what would we do in that case if they still make some urine, we'd give some intravenous calcium. And if they don't make any urine at all, then we have to do dialysis to remove the magnesium. Since we're talking about electrolytes, a couple of of questions when I'm thinking about hyperkalemia. Number one, if the patient gets a resuscitative fluid when they come into the ED and somebody grabs a, a bag of LR and it turns out that they're hyperkalemic. Was that a, a blunder on our part, or uh, I've read I've read a lot of different opinions on whether uh, Ringer's lactate can contribute to hyperkalemia, or uh, whether it's an error to give it to a hyperkalemic patient. What's your stance on that? Uh, I wouldn't consider it much of a blunder because the concentration of potassium is so low. I think it's like four, four mil, yeah. yeah, four mil equivalents up, and it's usually someone's got all these other problems, kidney failure, on a whole lot of medication. It's hard to believe that those four mil equivalents make a big difference. So I wouldn't call it a major blunder. I'd forgive you, okay? Uh, and there might be some advantages of giving the LR, which you guys know, right? The, giving the base and things might be beneficial. And and then the flip side to that is um, we, we end up seeing a, a lot of small laboratory deviations in otherwise healthy patients. And one that I struggle with is hyperkalemia because I've also had terrible outcomes from that also. When, when is it okay to send somebody with a minor elevation in their K home? Um, is it, uh, you, you gave such an expert and, and wonderful answer about the creatinine, which I, I feel like I would be more dogmatic about that and say this, and, and now I feel like I can really fall back on my clinical judgment. But similarly with the potassium, it can be elevated from so many medications and things. Sometimes I feel like I need to admit these patients and and get that down. What's your approach to those? Yeah. So one thing that would give me peace of mind if I saw a person with hyperkalemia would be to look back in the chart and see if they'd had hyper hyperkalemia before. Okay. And then I'd say, ah, good news is that their cardiac membranes and other membranes have started to adapt to the hyperkalemia. So yeah. So the our dialysis patients. They're having hyperkalemia frequently, and their their body's kind of adapted to it, okay? So I wouldn't be too concerned, okay, uh, if it's acute hyperkalemia and someone that hasn't had it before then, I would be concerned. So 
And if they've got other things going on, like acidosis and just not feeling well, then I would be concerned about the potassium. Of course, you guys would check it again, okay? And if it's persistent, then you got to make a decision. So, uh, yeah, at some point. Uh, so a level above six would start to make me concerned. Less than six, eh, maybe not so concerned. It's still, if there's something I could do. So if I saw a level less than six and I saw they're taking an ACE inhibitor, I'd say, ah, easy. I can get this better by stopping the ACE inhibitor. And if I see a level less than six in there, taking spironolactone, I say, ah, easy, I can get this better by stopping the spironolactone. But getting above six, then I start to get concerned, especially if they've got some underlying disease, heart disease, if they're just not feeling well. And yeah, certainly above 6.5, then, uh, then I'd get even more concerned. Uh, so what would I do in that case? So you got to kind of look at the patient overall uh, and look at their medications, of course, and and go from there, uh, and maybe there's some interventions you could do, get rid of the ACE inhibitor, give them a little more diuretic, have them go on a low potassium diet, get some quick follow-up, and if you're just kind of uncomfortable, then guess what? Patients might have to be admitted. A similar situation, and we've alluded to it before about NSAIDs. Let's talk about NSAIDs in patients with acute kidney injury and chronic renal failure. Take me through how dangerous are they compared to alternative pain management strategies. All right. Let me ask the group here. Raise your hand if you've never taken a NSAID. Really? <laughs> yeah, I've never wow. taken it. You knew from day one you were going to be a nephrologist. <laughs> right. Wow. For yeah. those in the audience, um, Jim raised his hand. Alex and I have both not raised our hands. All Tylenol all the time. All right. Uh, so, yeah, I was born. No, it's born. all opioids. <laughs> <laughs> I was born and raised before there were NSAIDs, okay, uh, yeah, so of course, yeah, I've taken Tylenol, uh, but uh, yeah, and because I'm a kidney doctor, I try to avoid NSAIDs, uh, and oh, so, but I I always talk to students and residents, I say, oh, NSAIDs are great pain medications, uh, you guys have taken them, you'll prescribe them a lot, patients will definitely benefit from NSAIDs, uh, and even patients in the ED who have uh, acute pain from uh, kidney stone, it's uh, NSAID is preferred medication. So, so NSAIDs are, are good, okay, uh, but yes. Acute, I was going to say, I feel a butt coming. Yeah, it's coming. <laughs> yes, uh, but acute kidney injury does happen, okay, and it can happen in, in somebody with no risk factors at all, okay, it has happened, and maybe it's because the NSAID causes a little bit of an allergic reaction, acute interstitial nephritis. Uh, but it's more likely to happen in that they see a drop in GFR in people that have chronic kidney disease or they have other underlying problems, and then we can see it. Uh, and so do we ever prescribe NSAIDs to our ESRD patients? And reluctantly, we do sometimes, okay? Uh, because there's just no other pain medication that we think we can give safely. Uh, but we have to be careful. Uh, and how are NSAIDs so hard on the kidneys? Uh, well, they cause potent vasoconstriction. So prostaglandins in the kidneys are mostly vasodilators. So NSAIDs reduce the prostaglandin levels, and the kidneys are always kind of the vasoconstricted state, at least in stressful situations. So baseline Lower prostaglandins, probably no big problem, but when they get in a stressful situation, they get a little volume contracted, and their kidneys can vasodilate, and then they get acute kidney injury. Yeah. And, of course, NSAIDs have been 
known to do other things. So they can cause acute interstitial nephritis. We'll see that once in a while. Person taking NSAIDs, uh, and then boom, they've got a really bad kidney function. They might even have some blank pain. Their kidneys are so swollen. We'll see on ultrasound the kidneys are swollen. And that's acute interstitial nephritis. Uh, and both they'll respond well to just stopping the NSAID. We might have to give a steroid therapy for that. NSAIDs have been known to cause other unexpected things in the kidneys. Believe it or not, they've caused glomerular nephritis. There's cases of that. Uh, and they can cause so much vasoconstriction, they'll cause papillary necrosis even. Uh, yeah. But again, most people tolerate them fine. But if the, if they're mixed in with other medications, uh, yeah, then, then problems happen. So if they're mixed in with diuretics and they're mixed in with, with uh, ACE inhibitors, well, then we'll see a lot of acute kidney injury. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. I, I view it, you know, when I think about all the opioid-related harms that we see, um, and then we see, you know, liver failure from Tylenol and whatnot, and it's hard to know where to turn. And, it is hard. And sometimes patients will be so insistent. My doc says I can't use NSAIDs, but <laughs> you can give me 80 billion units of morphine. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I just, I can't do uh-huh. that, you know, and, uh-huh. um, but it's not, I didn't have a perspective. It sounds very similar in the mechanism of injury to contrast. Very similar. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if, uh, if I see a patient with CKD, that's chronic kidney disease. That's one thing we're always mentioning is try to avoid non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, and what can we offer for pain management for a patient like that? Uh, we offer acetaminophen, and what does the patient say? Yeah, I've tried that, it just doesn't seem to work. Uh, but th- we offer that. Uh, and then if what other options do we have? Then the options are kind of limited, unfortunately. Uh, and if we have to go to a narcotic, the preferred narcotics for someone with really low kidney function would be hydromorphone, okay, and also fentanyl, okay. And of course, we doctors who get kind of leery about those medications. Uh, dialysis patients, it's been found that about 50% of dialysis patients take a narcotic sometime in a year. Okay, so many pain conditions, uh, so many hospitalizations, about half of them have, have received a narcotic in the past year. And what's the most common narcotic? It's usually oxycodone, okay, which is okay for kidney patients, maybe not the best pharmacokinetic profile for a kidney patient. Some of the metabolites can accumulate. Uh, again, hydromorphone or fentanyl might be preferred, but usually it's oxycodone that they get. Uh, Do you think hydrocodone has a benefit over oxycodone? No, nope, hydrocodone we wouldn't like it because of the metabolites. Um, and we certainly wouldn't like morphine. So morphine is one drug that is almost completely metabolized by the kidneys, believe it or not. So morphine is, is a bad one for a kidney patient. Demerol is really bad for kidney patients. Has seizures, kidney patient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we got to find some better ways to manage pain in patients with kidney disease. So, yep, there's probably physical therapy things they could be doing, and and just maintaining their overall fitness level w- would help. Uh, one other question. I apologize. I just noticed. Should we be thinking about urine electrolytes? as something we're sending in more clinical syndromes? Are you, are you seeing patients downstream and you're wishing the ED had sent urine electrolytes? So urine electrolytes can be helpful, but sometimes not, okay? Where 
probably the most helpful would be the assessment of hyponatremia. Okay, it'd be really nice if the EED could get a urine osmolality and a urine sodium in a patient with hyponatremia. But guess what? I realize it's hard because the patient doesn't need to urinate, and then they're going off the floor. But if if we could capture a urine osmolality, urine sodium that in the emergency department before therapies begin, then that would really help us get the diagnosis right for the hyponatremia, okay? But in, when it comes to urine, creatinine, and urine electrolytes in acute kidney injury, I tend to think not as helpful, okay? Yeah. So with acute kidney injury, it's usually history, history, history that wins, okay? And a lot of doctors will try to get a fractional excretion of sodium and the like uh, to try to pinpoint what's the cause for the acute kidney injury. But again, the history will win over that many, many times, and, and the fractional excretion just does, just kind of falls through. So if the history is really pointing towards volume contraction, that's probably what it is. If the history exam is really pointing towards acute tubular necrosis, that's probably what it is. I don't usually need urine chemistries to make that diagnosis. Any other final comments, thoughts, things you wish the ED knew that would make your job easier, taking great care of the patient? I think you guys do great things, okay? Uh, yeah, so restoring the effective circulatory volume is key early on. I know your, uh, your emergency responders, your ambulance crews know all about that. That's definitely been shown to prevent uh, acute kidney injury in mass casualty situations. When the ambulance crew gets the intravenous uh, fluids going, that, that makes a big, big difference and saves their patients from dialysis. Uh, yep, so, and, oh, we've talked about contrast, talked about working up acute kidney injury, so I think you guys are doing great things. Well, this has been incredible. I want to run through some of the key learning points that I've learned today. Contrast nephropathy. We, there are, is a lot of debate in the literature, and I think the EM literature is often biased towards us needing to do the CT scans and, and trying to prove to ourselves that we're, we're not making kidney function worse, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't contrast nephropathy. And the mechanism of that is probably vasoconstriction mediated. Giving contrast to a patient who has end-stage renal disease isn't necessarily benign. If they produce urine, it actually might make their dialysis more challenging. And so kind of a, a middle ground when possible, it sounds like if it's indicated, we could do a non-contrast CT, see what we can see, and then do the contrast if we need, understanding that there's a downside to it. In addition to that, we talked about defining acute kidney injury and looking carefully at the patient's baseline and considering that even a normal value can indicate an injury to the patient. We talked about indications for dialysis, where to place a, a temporary dialysis catheter and the difference between a temporary and tunneled dialysis catheter as well as continuous and intermittent dialysis in the, in the unit. We talked about the numerous things that I prescribe that will in, injure the kidney uh, and, uh, and some, some key numbers to consider. Uh, I know something that's always bothered me is when can I send this creatinine home and really trying to think about that and hyperkalemia in the context of the patient. I think so the, the last question I have, you were, you were saying earlier that when you go on these trips, bring a compass only. <laughs> tell, it, tell, oh, you, yeah. tell us more for, about For the audience, you. Jim does not carry a phone. Well, that's because I'm old-fashioned, okay? Uh, so that's it, really what it is. is I, I kind of think we learn a lot from our experiences, and 
I don't like to change unless I really, really have to. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I don't carry a phone. And when I, when I go on wilderness camping, I take the latest gear, no question about it, but I try to rely on and myself and I try not to rely too much on technology. Uh, and that's why, um, I have deep, dark stresses sometimes at work because of all our reliance on the electronic medical record and like <laughs> bring me back the pencil and paper. <laughs> uh-huh. But at the same time, you are forward thinking about ultrasound for nephrology and mm-hmm. the nephrology practice and wanting to do point of care ultrasound so much more. Yeah. So we're growing our point of care ultrasound program in the nephrology and it's basically because I like to look at images and find it kind of fun. So so the, the nice thing about point of care ultrasonography, it, you know, from, from the nephrology point of view, gives us peace of mind. Okay, so we see a person on the floor, we think it's volume overload, and sure enough, we see beelines. We say, ah, very likely is volume overload. So it gives us peace of mind. Okay, another advantage of point of care ultrasonography is that guess what? The patients like it. That's been shown in the emergency department studies that patients who've gotten point of care ultrasonography they like that and. And I, I appreciate that. So when I see patients, I always say to the resident, I say, we got to make sure we tell the patient what we saw. They like hearing that they've got the sweetest kidneys in all the land. <laughs> uh, they like hearing that. Uh, and and then the third thing that we really like about point-of-care ultrasonography, guess what? It's kind of fun. Thank you so much, Dr. Gregoire. We always learn a lot and have a great time talking with you. And we're so happy to bring a small portion of that experience to our larger audience. Getting to work with teammates like you to care for our wonderful patients is what makes working at Mayo Clinic really special. To our Always On EM family, thank you again for listening. I know this is going to be a great year, and I'm sure you have a bunch of topics you want to hear us cover. Send them to us on Twitter or Instagram at alwaysonem or via email at alwaysonem at gmail.com, and we will try and connect you with the world expert on that subject. Come back mid-month for the next Grand Rounds release and be sure to like, comment, follow us on whatever podcasting platform you're using and tell your friends, colleagues, and students what you've learned today and together we will uplift the care that all patients seeking urgent and emergent care receive. And lastly, Happy New Year to each and every one of you. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda. 